Ezekiel chapter 1. So I'm going to read you guys. i got two verses I want to read for an introduction. I only have two points today, so we'll be in and out really quick. The bad news is I have about eight pages of notes. So two points, you know, it'll, it'll fill us up. Um, Ezekiel 1, 1, 2. Now it came about in the, fifth, or the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month while I was by the river Kabar among the exiles. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of Jehoiak, uh, King Jehoiakim's exile. Um, so right here, right away, we kind of get a taste or a little flavor of, of what's going on here. What is going on? Well, the, Jehu- uh, the, the Judahites are in exile. Um, basically, long story short, we'll get into some of it, but, but Judah was judged, um, and they were taken into captivity by Babylon, ancient Babylon. And Ezekiel currently finds himself sitting near an irrigation canal, and he's kind of mopey, if you haven't caught that vibe yet. Um, and if I had to title today's message, which I did, uh, I would title it uh, Hope and Despair, because Ezekiel is, you know, of all people that we could read about, I mean, he's in about as hopeless of a position as you could possibly be in, and we'll get into that. But he finds hope in what God reveals to him. And what God revealed to Ezekiel, I think, is just as helpful to us as it was to him. Uh, so as we dive in, there's a lot of information, a lot of text that we're going to go through, but I promise it goes somewhere. And this has been a blessing to me in my personal life. Uh, this, this study, or this, whatever this is that I have in front of me here, was once a, a study before it was a sermon. Uh, it's been working on me for a couple months, and I've just found it to be immensely uh, helpful. So I hope as we kind of move through it that you get just as much out of it as I have. That's really my only goal for today. So Ezekiel's in exile. Now, to give you some context as to what's, what produced that, uh, I have Second Kings chapter 24 in the computer, Jose, for a slide. We'll read that. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials, everybody. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the temple, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. So God, God told them that this was going to happen because of their, their actions. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the, captain, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Now, so what we have here, this, this period of time in Israel's history. So you're like, okay, well, that's Judah. What about the rest of Israel? Because if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know there's 12 tribes. And so long ago, before this, before this event, there was a split in the monarchy. And so you have a northern kingdom, and you have a southern kingdom. Southern kingdom was Judah. It was two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then the northern kingdom was the other ten tribes. And so you kind of read this, and you're like, okay, it's talking specifically about, about Judah. The, you know, what about, what about the rest of the people? Well, unfortunately for them, the, uh, the northern kingdom had suffered a, a, similar, a similar tragedy about 120 years prior. Um, if you go to, this will give you some insight into that. If we go to Jeremiah chapter 3, Jose, um, this is a, a brief description of what, what was going on with, between Israel and Judah. 
Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless, keyword, faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green, t- every green tree, and she was a harlot there, strong language. I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me, but she did not return, Israel. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it, and I saw, for, am I too loud? Can you guys hear me in the back? Okay. Um, lost my spot. And I saw that for, uh, for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. So, so God is divorcing Israel. Yet her treacherous, treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the, the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all of this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. So there's some strong language here. And as we, there we go, closer. And as we look through this, I want you to see that the stuff that's happening is like God is judging them. And as we read this passage, there's a lot of descriptive language. But long story short, uh, Israel and Judah were apostate, meaning that they were worshiping idols. They were worshiping other gods other than the God of Israel. They broke their covenant. And if you guys know anything about the Bible, the you know, Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, Israel had a covenant, which that term is exchange or interchangeable with a contract. They had an agreement um, that they were not going to worship any other gods. And so God says, I judged faithless Israel because of their apostasy. And basically, he divorces Israel. And he's like, Judah saw what happened to her sister and is now doing the same thing. And then you cue Nebuchadnezzar coming and seizing, seizing the city. And so that's, that's the context. That, that's what's going on in the background of the story, in the background of Ezekiel's mind as we're, as we're looking at these events. And so one of the key takeaways here is, you know, and it, it's kind of one of those things, it's descriptive, we kind of glance over it, but God wrote Israel a certificate of divorce. Strong language. And the significance of that is under the Sinai covenant, which is what Israel was under, you could not divorce your wife and take her back. Like that was not, that was not okay. So they knew, like the people knew, like, dude, God just divorced us. Like there's no... Like, he's done. Like, there's no turning back. And so keep all of this in the back of your mind as we, we talk about Ezekiel and his story and what he sees, um, because this is the, the background, this is the backdrop of what's going on in Israel and in Judah, is that, you know, they're, they've been judged for their apostasy, and they're now out of the land because they polluted it. And God's presence is no longer there. So moving forward, we have... so. Now back to Ezekiel. Now the book of Ezekiel, he prophesied while living in Babylon. We saw in verse 1 that Ezekiel was with a group of other exiles that were in Babylon. Now, interestingly enough, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the term captives instead of exile, which basically should tell us that like, he wasn't just a refugee somewhere. Like These were war prisoners. Like Ezekiel was not just you know, in some other country trying to make his way. He was a, he was a prisoner of war. And I'm telling you all of this to, to emphasize the fact that he was in about of a, you know, I mean, there, you really can't get in much more of a hopeless position than Ezekiel was in. But he finds hope. And so now with Israel, and all of this comes together in the end, I know this is a lot of reading, but 
Zechariah 7.13. You got that one, Jose? Getting that in there. There we go. Um, hmm, I must have wrote that one down wrong, but this one does just as good. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. Now that's descriptive of, so when, Israel, when, uh, when the Assyrians conquered the Israelites, when they were judged for their apostasy, they were scattered to the wind. Very different than Ezekiel's situation where they're taken, you know, there were three waves of captivity. Ezekiel was in the second. They were taken to Babylon. And so, very different situation. They took them, and they basically scattered them into every province they had to keep there keep their from being in, like an insurrection of, you know, rebellion against the empire. And so, very different treatment between these two, these two people groups. But let's talk more about Ezekiel. So, in the first two verses, we, we kind of have, there's a plethora of information packed in. Ezekiel references a 30th year. He says, it came about in the 30th year, and he goes on the month and the day so on and so forth. He's very precise. But what's significant about 30 years? Like, why, why would he bother to mention that? Well, for Ezekiel, as we read forward in the book, he was, a, he was a Levite. He was one of the descendants of Aaron, meaning that the priesthood was his birthright. And in Israel, you, you know, the priesthood was continually in service to God. Like, that was their, that was their birthright as a people group. And when you turn 30 you are now eligible to work in the service of God in the temple. And so Ezekiel, as he's moping on the side of this irrigation canal, he's like, man, I just, you know, I just turned 30 years old. I, could, I should be in God's service in the temple right now, but my people had to go and mess everything up and get freaking exiled. Can I use the word freaking? Okay, I, I won't. Um, <laughs> um, but he's like, you know, so, so that's a, it's a significant number. Uh, the year 30. Go ahead, get it all out. It's all good. Okay. Um, but anyway, so he's, he's in a place where he, he, he can finally perform and do the duties of, you know, his forefathers and, and their fathers and something that people have been doing for generations, but he can't do it because, A, he's no longer in the land, and, B, the temple's about to be destroyed. Um, the, the text mentions who his father is, which kind of bolsters the fact that he's a priest. Now, interestingly enough, just a sidebar uh, note here, Peter, in 1 Peter, quotes the Old Testament and applies that same birthright of being in the priesthood to believers, 1 Peter 2.9. For you are a chosen generation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, Peter didn't get that from anywhere. Like, he didn't just come up with that. What he did was he quoted his Old Testament, and he applies that to first century believers in Jesus, that they are now a part of the people of God, and not just a part of the people of God, but you are priests. You were in service to the Lord, not just, not just bystanders. Just a sidebar item. I thought that was cool. Um, but, so as he's sitting in his position here, something interesting happens with Ezekiel. He has a vision. And if you guys know anything about the prophets in the Bible, they always have, they always have some sort of vision that calls them into their prophetic ministry. And so what we're about to read, and I've chopped it up into two sections. We'll skip some, uh, just because it's such a, I mean, we'd be here for a long time if I read the whole thing. 
Uh, but if you want to go read it, you can. But I tried to keep all of the, the main details in here for you. But he has a vision where he encounters the presence of God. And this, this right here, I've broken it up into two parts. Uh, this right here is where Ezekiel, he gets happy. He sees the vision, and it is like nothing that he would ever expect. And it is just an amazing experience for him. And I think that if, as we walk through this, it'll be helpful for all of us. So Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 should be up on the screen there. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi. What a name. In the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. And as I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it, there were, four, there were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. I told you it gets weird. Like we're, you know, five verses in and it's already getting crazy. Um, each of them had four faces, four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. And as for the faces and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another and their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. Um, as for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion and on the right side of the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces and their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another, being in two covering their bodies. So really weird vision. And we'll kind of parse it out some. But now something to keep in mind here is God does not communicate to people in ways that they don't understand. So this is really weird to us, but when Ezekiel saw what he saw, he knew exactly what he was looking at. Like there was no doubt in his mind when he saw this that it was what we'll end up describing it to be. And a lot of people look at weird stuff like this in our, you know, our 21st century context, and they're like, oh, Ezekiel totally saw a UFO. Like that's totally... It's totally what's being, and if you watch the History Channel long enough after 11 p.m., you'll see what I mean, because it's on there. <laughs> don't, ask, don't ask my wife, because I do that. Um, <laughs> I'm like, come on, babe, five minutes of ancient aliens. I need to get my, uh, get my weird on for a couple minutes. Um, but just a couple observations here. Number, the first thing that I noticed when reading the vision, and you probably did too, was that we see God's presence showing up in all, uh, of all places in a storm. How, how about that? <laughs> the fact that God's presence is with us when we are in a storm and that he has command over that. That's not really a part of the, the picture as a whole, but I noticed that and I was like, how convenient. How convenient that God put that in there to tell us that he is not only with us in the storm, but he's in the storm. And so that was my first observation. And we see that there's, there's four living beings, four creatures described. And Based on other biblical texts, they resemble what's called a cherubim, which in different cultural context, bleh, context is a, uh, it's a throne guardian. So when you see a cherubim, when you're from Ezekiel's day, you know that they're associated with some sort of throne. Like some, there's, a, you know, there's a ruler somewhere, and these are there to guard their throne. Like that's, you know, that, that's what that is. And so as we look at these, you're like, okay, so they're throne guardians. There's a god in the storm. Okay, so we haven't seen the throne yet, but what's up with the four faces? Like, is this, you know, what kind of creepy, 
What kind of creepy thing are we looking at? And again, for us, we, we don't quite get it because this, this is not imagery that's familiar with us. Okay, and if you read further into the vision, it talks about this, this thing that was carrying God's throws having wheels inside of wheels. And I'm like, oh, okay, divine roan's got spinner rims. Got it. That's, you know, that's what I think of when I think wheels inside of wheels. You know, he's taking it back to 2005, but that's cool, you know. Um, but, you know, when we read these things, we apply what we know about words and images to that. But when Ezekiel sees this, when he sees these creatures, he's thinking of something completely different. So there are more to our four-faced, bovine-footed friends than meets the eye. These creatures are puzzling to us, but Ezekiel would have known exactly what it meant. Based on their features and their location, it's commonly accepted that the four faces on these cherubim represent the four corners of the zodiac. Coincidentally, something that was coined by Babylonian astrologers. There's no coincidence here. So, so Ezekiel, so catch, the, catch the, the stream of thought here. Ezekiel's sitting in Babylon, and he is now, I mean, he's surrounded by people speaking a language that he does not know, and he's being told to worship deities that he does not know. And within this context, like these people, they worshipped the stars. They worshipped uh, different deities that were represented by what they saw in the sky. And when we look at the sky, we're like, oh, okay, you know, the earth rotates and it circles the sun. But, but they didn't know that. And so in this culture, you have a flat earth, you have a dome, and there's things in this dome that light up and they, for, what, for whatever reason, they move. So surely since they, these things move, they're creatures. And so for these people, these are, these are not just stars in the sky, they're deities. And Ezekiel, in his time, he's being told you know, that these, that these creatures on the zodiac, you have these four points among other constellations, like they are, they are in charge of your destiny, is what he's being told. And so how many of you know like horoscopes, anything like that, ever, ever heard about it? So, you know, in our, in our context, we look at that and we're like, you know, we, like today is horoscope, you're gonna breathe today. Oh, thank you, thank you Aquarius, appreciate that. Um, but, but for them, this was not a, it wasn't a joke or a game, it wasn't a, you know, one of those Facebook things where you plug your information into and you're like, you know, you're a, you're a baked potato. That's the kind of potato that you are today. Um, you know, not quite like that. Like these were, this was serious stuff. So the fact that Ezekiel, he gets this vision and in the vision, he's like, oh man, God's going to show me something cool. Boom, Zodiac. <sighs> Thank you. As if I already didn't know that I was subject to these people. And as an, as an Israelite, your religion is tied to the land. So if you're outside of the land, there's no temple. God's presence is not with you. You were subject to the gods of the other nations. That's just how they thought. And so as Ezekiel has this vision, these are, these are what's going on in his head. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, zodiac, creatures, weird stuff. Why on earth is this in the Bible? And if you're, you know, if this is your first time through Ezekiel, that's probably not the only confusing thing that you're seeing. Well, let's find out. Ezekiel 1, 22 through 28, as the, the vision continues. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse. So I'm going to pause, take a break there. So the word used for expanse here, it's describing a sky. So Ezekiel is seeing a sky over these creatures that represent constellations. So it's like he's looking up at the heavens. And like the awesomeness gleam, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads, under the expanse, or the sky, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. 
Now, if you've read much about the Old Testament, you know that that's what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant, two cherubims with wings stretched out towards each other. Each one also had two wings covering its body, one on the side of the other. I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli, which is like a blue stone in appearance and on that which resembled a throne high up was the figure with the appearance of a man what does that mean to us there's a man on a god's throne it's jesus then i noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it and from the appearance of his loins and downward i saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him and as the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on the rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. So, okay, that's a lot to take in. Now, let's break it down because this, this, means, this, this means something. And so, as we look at this, um, what, so let's put the whole thing together. So Ezekiel sees these creatures that represent the zodiac, and they're underneath the sky because they're constellations. And above the sky, he sees what looks like a throne. And on the throne is a man figure. Like, you know, I read that and I start to get happy. I'm like, come on, son of man on the throne, you know. Um, So maybe I'm the only one that gets excited about that, but that's just me. But you read this and you're like, okay, so how do we parse this out? And why would God show this in this way to Ezekiel? Like, what message is this this sending? Because Ezekiel would have understood it. And so knowing that these are constellations and Yahweh's throne is above them, the, the message that's being forecast is like, hey, listen, you have been told since you've been in exile that I'm not with you because the temple's not here. And what's interesting about this vision is you see God's throne, but there's no throne room, which tells us that God's presence is not tied to the temple in Jerusalem. He can go anywhere he wants. He is sovereign. And when Ezekiel sees this, he's like, oh my goodness. Like there's, yeah, there's the Zodiac and that's, that's what people tell me around here and now that I'm in Babylon, that's, that's, what, that's what's in charge of my destiny. That's what, that's what tells me who I am and what I'm gonna do in my life. Like that, that, runs, that runs the show, this, the, these creatures in the Zodiac do. And God comes along and he's like, hey, listen, look, those guys, they're nothing. He's like, them and in their sky, he's like, my throne is far above that. And not only that, if you read the vision, these, these creatures are subservient to move God's throne. And so the message that's being sent to Ezekiel is that the things that you thought were in control of your destiny are not, and I am. Wow, that's a powerful message. And so this is, this is the message that Ezekiel is getting from this vision, is that God is in control and that he has not been forsaken. That's a powerful message for somebody who's been exiled from their land, who thinks that God is no longer with them. That's powerful. Now, as we move forward, how do we, um, you know, how do we apply that to where we are now? Well, today I have, I have two points for you. Um, there's a, couple, and, and there's a couple things at work here, and I'll, it'll all tie together. It's going to be so awesome, I promise. Um, 
it all ties together, but I have two points, and I want you guys to think about something as we move through this, because there's, there's things that when Ezekiel sees this vision, he understands, like, okay, God is with me. He has not forsaken me. He is still at work. Like, that has been made very clear to Ezekiel. But what has not been made clear is to what extent that happens in the future, what God's plan is to work through that. And so, just like for Ezekiel, there was a reality where there's an element of this that he can see. There's an element of this that he's aware of. There's also an element that he is not aware of at all that God's going to work out. And so, if you've ever found yourself in a mess, so has Ezekiel. And if you've ever found your place in a place of deep despair, that's where Ezekiel is. And as we read the text and we understand it as he would have understood it, we can get the same comfort from that that he did. And that's what's important about reading the Bible in its context, is that if we don't, we're getting something entirely different that the author never intended. So as we dive into this, I want to help you guys understand that this is, like, this is good. This is comforting. And so as we move into this, the, the first point after reading the text is, is almost self-explanatory. But we can find hope this morning in his person, in the person of Jesus. Because that's, that's all Ezekiel had in this very moment. Was he, he, was, he was, I mean, he dug a hole and was beneath rock bottom. And then he gets a vision. And it changes everything. And from this point forward, he is now called and working in God's ministry. Sure, he's not, a, he's not a priest in the temple, but he's still doing God's work. Like he can still, he's still doing what God is calling him to do. So we can find hope in his person. As we read through the vision that Ezekiel sees, one thing is clear. Jesus is sovereign over all other forces at work in our world. We find that four beings that represent the zodiac are subservient to Yahweh, which is the, the God of the Israelites. Being a part of what moves his throne, he is seated high above and in command of the forces that Babylon thinks govern the ordered world and its inhabitants. And you're saying, okay, I kind of, I'm tracking with it, I get it, but we're about simply Jesus here at Bethlehem. So, you know, what is that, what does this have to do with simply Jesus? Well, let's go to Revelation chapter 4. Should be, okay, you got it, he's quick. Jose's quick with it, man. Um... Revelation chapter 4, immediately, verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he was sitting like a, he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads, and out from the throne come flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. Okay, so hang on. So now we have this, we have another throne vision. And what do we have? We have the same four beings described around this throne. Um, first creature was like a lion, the second was like a calf, the third was like a, like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And so, you know, you're, you're catching a theme here. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. In Revelation, and this was, I, 
you could ask Pastor Matt. I was talking to him, racking my brain around this. Because when you're studying things in Scripture, and they all connect, and I'm, like, chasing this rabbit trail, like, okay, these things, this is way too similar to Ezekiel to not be related when you're looking at this. And so the conclusion that I arrived at was that John takes pieces, who, who wrote Revelation, he takes pieces from every scene in the Old Testament from these divine throne encounters with Yahweh, and puts them all into one scene with no other than Jesus occupying the throne. So the message that he's trying to send, and listen, the book of Revelation is another one. It's kind of strange to, you know, to a 21st century reader. Um, but one thing is clear in Revelation chapter 4, and it's that he is trying to convey a thought to you that if you've read the Old Testament and you've read these things like Ezekiel chapter 1 where, where there's a figure described on the throne who's sovereign, He's like, hey, guess what? All of those put together, all of these throne things, it's all Jesus. Jesus is all sovereign. So this is not just an Old Testament thing. Like this, this reality of the Son of Man sitting on the throne is not exclusive to the Old Testament. So this is something that we can be sure to have hope in today. We can hope in the person of Jesus because he's still sitting on the throne. That's comforting. Now, well, let's see. This is the trouble with printed notes. Sometimes they, uh, they get a little befuddled here. So John has this, this vision, and it, you, you're, you're connecting the dots a little bit. So it was plain for Ezekiel to see that his Lord was the only one who had an active role in shaping his future. And if I can just bring this on an even more practical level for you, all of us right now with the, the whole COVID-19 thing, regardless of where you land, like, is it as bad as they say it is? Is it not? Is it a political? It doesn't, regardless of where you land on that, what's important to understand is that none of those things are outside of God's control. What's important to understand is that the powers that be in government, whether you like them or not, they are not above God. And honestly, and we've talked about this before, the, the state has become the God of the West. And the God of the West, if you were to plug this into Ezekiel, would be beneath the throne. And so the powers that be that we think control where we're going in life and what, and what is in store for our future, they're nothing. They're nothing because they are subservient to the God who is eternal, who is on the throne. Old Testament, New Testament, forever, take it to the bank, cash it. We can hope in his person because he has been the same forever. The second thing that I think we can find comfort in this morning is that we can hope in his purpose. There we go. You got it, Jose. You're a G. Um, so as we look at this, okay, so we've got, so it's all coming together. We have these, these throne images, and we have God on the throne. He's above the forces that we think run our lives. Yes, that's awesome. He's in charge of our destiny as followers of Jesus. That's great. But what about the stuff that, that we can't see? And if you've lived for any amount of time, you can understand that our world is a mess. Is it not? I mean, we're, I mean, goodness gracious. And I don't think it's, I'm not of the opinion that it's worse than it's ever been before, right? But at the same time, it is a mess. And God does not need to, to create evil to, to bring about good because we've done plenty of that ourselves. Um, God doesn't need evil, but he does have the power, and this is going to be a key to the next, you know, the next section of the message. He does not need evil, but he has the power to take the evil and use it to produce good. And if you read um, 
if you read Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So what does that look like? Well, here's the, here's the thing. Ezekiel had no idea what that would look like. Ezekiel had no idea what God's plan was for the exiles, for, for Israel and uh, Israel. <laughs> I'm getting my southern on. Um, for Israel and Judah. He had no idea what God's complete plan was. All he knew was that God, despite what he thought before, was still with him and that God was still at work. Like, that's all Ezekiel knew. And so what we know as the church today is that God is with us. In the Old Testament, one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, that's one thing that we can be sure of because we can hope in his person. But what about his purpose? What is he bringing to pass? And so we can look back at, at human history from now until, you know, the furthest back we can record, and we can see how God has worked in times past. And in Scripture alone, we can see how God works through the exile. And we're going to talk about that, and it's the awesomest thing ever. I don't know if awesomest is a word, but I'm going to use it. Um, but so how does his purpose flush out in our lives? And once again, has anything bad ever happened to anybody? Is it just my hand up? Am, do, am I the only one with bad luck? No. Um, you know, bad things happen, okay? Being in a hopeless place happens. Experiencing depression happens. And in this room full of people, collectively, we have experienced an unreal amount of heartache, maybe even just the past year. And so none of us are any stranger to sorrow. But what I think what's hard to wrap our brain around is like, you know, you know, you hear people, you, you, you ever meet one of those people and it's like, you know, you talk to them and you're like, ah, you know, this, this is going on and this, man, this just really stinks. I'm not really sure what to do. And they're like, hey, God's good. He's got great plans, yo. Like he's, he's working and you're like, yeah, but that's not really what I wanted to hear. You know, I, I don't want to hear that, you know, God is doing something to me so I can then have something greater later. Like that's not, that doesn't make me feel good about losing my spouse or my child. That doesn't make me feel great about losing my job that God has plans, so to speak, right? You guys tracking with me? Like, that's not always what we want to hear. And I think it's because a lot of times we're off base in how we describe things. Because going back once again, God does not need to create more evil, okay? He just doesn't. And that's not, that's not his MO as chief deity of the universe, if you want to use that as a title. So, but what he does do is he uses the evil that we create and it's like 4D chess where he's 40 moves ahead of everybody. And he uses the evil to produce good because that's who he is. And so as we think about this, as we think about what his purpose is, we got to be thinking long term as far as like, you know, what is God going to use my life for? What is God like? Yes, I've experienced tragedy. Yes, I've experienced fill in the blank. And we're, it's so hard to rationalize that in, our, in, in the now. It's so hard to look at it and be like, I have no idea how any good can come from this. It's so hard. It's so hard to look at that and, and think that way. But as we look through this, you'll see that God has a, man, he has a beautiful plan for the future. And he has a better plan, I think, for the future for Ezekiel than Ezekiel even had in, mi had in mind. So let's dive in here. So one thing that Ezekiel could not see was God's long-term play for the calamity facing his people. But he could see that God was with him. Yet, or, <clears throat> sorry, Israel and Judah deserved the judgment brought their way. Yes, God's intent was to deal with their sin, 
But there is another side to that coin and a greater purpose in mind that we'll see. Remember our, our conversation about God divorcing Israel? Yeah. So as, as we talked about, under the Sinai covenant, irreversible. You cannot take back your first wife. And there's some reasoning behind that that isn't really pertinent to the message. But the point is, is that his decision with Israel under the old covenant, under the Old Testament, was final. Like it could not be reversed. So what is God's solution to that? Because he made, a, after all, he made a promise to Abraham, right? He had to keep his promise. And so there has to be a solution for him divorcing Israel. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I had made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. He's like, over and over again, he's like, that covenant, the covenant that they broke, that one, yeah. Um, Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That, oh, wait a minute, there's more. I thought it was over because it was so good, but there's more. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin will I remember no more. So, Jeremiah was a contemporary to, to Ezekiel in this time. And God speaks through him to let, let the people know that, like, hey, listen, what I did with, Ju- uh, what I did with uh, Israel under the old covenant was final. But to reverse that, I've got to make a new covenant. And I'm going to do it, and here's how it's going to work. And we know, looking back, the new covenant means Jesus. The new covenant means the cross. The new covenant means Jesus rising from the grave. This, listen, hundreds and hundreds of years ahead of time, God's like, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the, the nasty things that you did to bring about more good than you can possibly imagine. And so that's, that's a part of it. So that's, that's God re, re-bringing them to himself. Now, as, a, as we read the Bible, the Bible is a unified story. It's a narrative. And so the gospel, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, has always been God's focus from beginning to end. There's no question about it. And with that in mind, it's kind of, you can kind of, with these events, you can see the landscape taking form in the exile period before, before Jesus comes, before the New Testament. And if you know how the book of Acts works, you know that the Apostle Paul went to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue in the Gentile nations. So why were there Jesus communities in Gentile, or sorry, why were there Jewish communities in these Gentile nations? Because that, you know, if you're, a, if you're an Old Testament Jew like Ezekiel, there, Israel is it. Like, your religion is tied to the land. You worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Like, that's, that's the end of it. This would all be foreign to him. But in the New Testament, remember we talked about Israel being scattered to the wind. Israel was, was, was thrown out. They got cast out of the land. And they were scattered to all the nations of the earth by Assyria. And they stayed there. They never came back. So up until the New Testament, there are no Israelites. There is just Judahites that survived the exile. Now, when Paul goes to all of these communities, all of these Jewish communities, and he announces the good news of the Messiah, the gospel takes root because these people are familiar. They, they know that there's a Messiah coming, and there, there's, there's these communities all over the known world, and Paul goes to them and brings them the message. And from there, the message spreads like wildfire to people like us 
Are any of you Jewish ethnically? No. There you go. So without the work that God did on the back end of the exile, the gospel would not have reached you. Like the, the work of God would not have been done the way that it was if he had not used the exile to create good. So as we look at all of, you guys seeing what I'm seeing? Like God is using this to produce just way more good on the back end than the evil that, that caused these events. And if he can do that on a grand scale with a group of people, he can do that with you. You guys tracking with me? You, you see that? Is it, because Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4, it's the same God on the throne, yes? Yes. And so this is not something that is abstract, that does not apply to you. We can find the same comfort in these things that Ezekiel did, that God is with us, that God is working. But guess what? Ezekiel didn't know all that was going to come about because of the exile. Ezekiel didn't know that the bulk of the Old Testament was going to be produced in Babylon by these Jewish communities. Okay, the, the Bible that we have is, it is the way that it is because it was formed there. Like that's, the, the word of God itself could not be the way that it is if they had not gone into exile. So there's, there is so much that is just like oozing from this that is, that is goodness that God created out of tragedy. Did God create this tragedy? Did he make Israel go apostate? Because in Deuteronomy, if you read, God's like, listen, you agreed to these terms and you know that if you go apostate, if you pollute the land, I will send you out of the land. Like, you will be gone. Like, he did not make them do that. He told them, what if they did this, this will happen. And guess what? They did it anyway. So it's not, it's not God's fault that they, they suffered the consequences of their actions. However, he knew they were going to do it, and so he used that to, to produce, I mean, the gospel movement is birthed from this, even though this is 500 years removed from the first century church. Holy cow. I mean, you want to talk about somebody making moves behind the scenes. I mean, you know, this is, it's, it's crazy to me. So there's enough evil in the world. We talked about that. Now, if, if nothing that I've said so far has made any sense to you whatsoever, and you're like, okay, I kind of get that, but like, can evil, really can, can evil really be used, can a gruesome evil really be used to produce good? And in our context, we think about the Holocaust, one of the most gruesome events in, in recent history, uh, among others. And we're like, can, can good really come from something that tragic? Like, can God really take an event that on, on that colossal of a scale and create good? Well, let's talk about events on a colossal scale that were terrible. The cross. The cross is the greatest example of the fact that God uses the deepest tragedy to accomplish his will in the world. There, there is no greater tragedy than the fact that the God of the universe who became a man was killed by the Roman Empire. Like he laid his life down and was put on a cross and died. Like that is about as heinous of a crime as you can possibly commit as a human, is killing God. That's I mean, I'm, that's probably not the best way to put it, but you, you get what I'm saying. Like, like Jesus' death on the cross is the greatest example of tragedy turning into good. Because without his death, there is no atonement. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no rising again. There is no making a way if Jesus did not suffer. Like, this is like, this is like a theme through the whole Bible. That, that suffering, that injustice leads to good because God is involved. And the law was given, this is, this is good, uh, Romans 8.3, Jose, 
You got that? For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, the law was temporary. The law was designed to be temporary, to, to, to keep human de- depravity at bay as long as possible so that community could be used to bring Jesus to the world. Like, that's the, that's the, the big picture plan for the law. But Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8 that the law could not do what Jesus did. It was a temporary plague. And what Ezekiel knows is that all he knows is the law. He doesn't know that Jesus is coming. He doesn't know that Israel's Messiah is coming in the near future. All he knows is that God's with him. And so as we kind of bring this thing to a close here, what we can understand, what we can know as a church is that, hey, God is at work. God's presence is with us. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can trust him as a person because he's faithful, right? But we don't know what the future looks like. When we examine our hurts today, it's tragic. All of us have been through terrible things. It's tragic. But we don't know how God is going to use that. And I I wish I knew and that I could tell you that, you know, how God was going to use tragedy in your life to bring about something so awesome. But we'll never know until we get to either the end of our lives and we can look back and see, or until we go to heaven one day. We just, we won't know. And so what I want to encourage you this morning in is, is keep the faith. Keep trusting that God is at work in your life and that the stuff that's happening to you is tragic. Is just, just hold on. Because one thing that Jesus promised us was, was suffering. Like he patterned for us a life of suffering. And he's like, hey, you want to follow me? Take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. You know, walk a, walk a day in my footsteps. Like, that's, that's what we're called to do. And so don't let, don't let suffering make you feel like God isn't with you or God doesn't like you. That's, that's not what it's for at all. Um, James said, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. You know, th- it's a, it should be a joyful thing when we encounter friction because that means God is working. And we can see that throughout the whole Old Testament, that God is at work through these different situations that were extremely uncomfortable, like the exile. And so what we have here, as we come to a close, I have two things that I thought were, were really cool that I, that I picked out from this that are, I guess, bonus, bonus points from the two points that I had. Uh, what Ezekiel could see with Israel and with Judah is that God dealt with their sin. He dealt with it. I mean, the, they, they did what they did, and God was like, you know because of our agreement I have to punish you, I have to kick you out of the land. He dealt with it. God dealt with the sin of his people. What Ezekiel could not see was God working through Israel's tragedy to bring about Jesus. He had no idea. And that's a big, like, whoa, holy cow, you know, way to, way to really throw that one in there and get that done on the back end. And for us, as the 21st century church, we're in a similar position. Um, what we can see is that Jesus dealt with our sin. Yes, in a very similar but different way. Jesus took the punishment of our sin upon himself and dealt with it. It's go- Listen, your sins are gone. You remember Jeremiah 31? I will remember their iniquities no more. It's gone. Jesus dealt with it. What we cannot see is Jesus working through our tragedies in our personal lives to bring about his kingdom. We, we can't see that. We know it's happening, but we, we, don't, 
we don't understand what is going on. All we can do is trust in his person and trust in his purpose. That's all we can do because that's, at the end of the day, all we know is that God is faithful and God has a plan. And we can trust in that this morning. If we can trust in his person, I mean, listen, we're, we're all, you know, we're in church. We trust in Jesus, yeah. You know, we've, we've put our faith in him. If we can trust him, we can trust what he's doing. If we can trust his person, we can trust in his purpose. And that's the big key for today is we have to, as we, as we look at all of this stuff going on, can you guys still hear me okay? Okay, cool. As we look at all of this stuff going on, it's important to understand that we can draw the same hope from Ezekiel's vision that he got and get the same butterflies in our stomach that he got if we're looking at it the same way. And it's that God is a trustable, faithful God. Jesus, rather. But Ezekiel didn't know uh, about the whole Jesus thing. <laughs> um, so as we kind of, as we come to a close here, I, you know, I, I urge you to, to trust in his person. And if you're sitting here under the sound of my voice today, and you're, you're like, this all sounds really cool, but I don't know if I trust Jesus. I don't, I don't, you're talking about the gospel, and I don't know what that is. If that's you this morning, come talk to me or one of the other, or Pastor Matt or one of the other church elders afterwards, and we can, we can talk about that with you and how you can trust in his, per- his person. Um, but if you're sitting here today and you're, you trust him, you trust Jesus, you know who he is, but you're struggling in your life to reconcile what is happening with, with who he is. And that's, I think, to a certain extent, that's all of us. I think we all struggle um, I think we all struggle with this. And so as we come to a close here today, as the music plays and, and we have some time to just kind of sit and meditate a little bit, um, just think about, think about your life and think about, um, you know, how, just how, how you can trust in his person more and how that can, Jose, can you, can you play the music? Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, as the music plays, keep, no. Um, but listen, as you, as you sit here today, just, think about who he is and we we trust him but trust his purpose trust that what's happening in your life is is not something that he's doing to you but something that he can use that has happened to you to do to do good trust that this morning trust in his person and trust in his purpose for your life